Yeah. No, 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 man. Man. Right off right there. I'll see you at the beginning, Brad. I'm willing to die, too. I want to make movies out of blood, origin, sperm, and tears. I believe, I believe this one out. I got, I got to talk to someone. Great, great job, great job. Dude, that doesn't make any sense. What? It's a jig, I swear to Christ. My line's in the middle of the road. As long as the bar is Philadelphia. Plenty of sausage. Everything but the little fishies. Well, it was a long and arduous journey, but we got to the end of the Planet of the Apes. How you doing, Lunchbox? Doing good, doing good. Hanging in there. How you doing? I'm all right, you know, things have been hectic, life's been busy. Um, it's been a few weeks since I watched these Planet of the Apes movies, so hopefully things will kind of just bubble to the surface and make sense. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure it will. Um, I'm sure it will. I guess some interesting things that happened while we were away. Uh, you read the book, right? The original Pierre Bull novel? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Finished it. Um, and I also watched the... The TV series, um, the live-action TV series, well, not all of them. I watched some of the live-action TV series and some of the animated TV series as well. Um, and then we both watched, you know, the Tim Burton one and then the new three, the trilogy. Um, that yeah, will the... be a quadrilogy soon. Um, but mm -hmm. Well, maybe. Yeah, I don't know. Well, I don't... That that's definitely jumping to the head, but I don't know that Kingdom is a, a direct, directly related to those. No, okay. Well, it's then. hard to tell, but. Um, but yeah, to get started, I guess um, you could talk a little bit about the uh, the book and just like how weird and different the book is and stuff. In the first episode, we were talking a little bit about like how the ending didn't come from the book and that sort of stuff, and we were looking for where other things came from like specifically nova we were talking about didn't we couldn't like track down where nova was from well nova's from the book um and the mm -hmm. book is actually like way more like the movie than i thought it was going to be um like we said it's it takes place in a world where apes have like full technology um and that sort of thing but it's very similar to how things play out in the movie it's just that in the movie like they're they have less technology, essentially. Like, the book is still about, like, three astronauts. They come and land, and then they search, and they find, uh, you know, the people that can't speak. Um, they find this girl who's... In, in the book, everybody's naked. Um, and they run into this girl who can't speak or anything, and but she's, like, super hot. And then they go to their town and kind of notice that the people can't speak. And then they notice that they're apes and they get, like, you know, hunted down and all of them die except for one. And that sort of it's uh, it's all very much the way that it happens in the book. But it's also like really different, like specifically like the the book is a lot more focused on the relationship with Nova than the movie is. Um, the book's very much like talking about this idea of passion and and um i don't know romance and and your intellectual connection to somebody versus your physical connection to somebody uh the book really has a big love triangle happening between um nova taylor and um zira and Tara, taylor in the book isn't um named taylor what's his name it's um U ulysses um but there's there's a there's a love triangle between ulysses. taylor 
Yeah, there's a love triangle between um, Zira, Ulysses, and um, Nova. And basically, like, Taylor's put in this cage with Nova, and he's made to mate with this woman in front of all of these apes and all this stuff, whatever, but he can speak. And basically, like, it's, it's a lot like um, um, Escape. A lot of Escape and a lot of Conquest also come from the original Planet of the Apes book, um, where basically, like, once Taylor's captured in the movie and he's put in the prison and stuff, you kind of get to him breaking out and all that pretty quickly. The book's very focused on, like, the politics involved in, like releasing the information to the public that Taylor can speak. So, like, Taylor is kind of like the apes in Escape, where they're like, well, let's not let everybody know that we can talk. Like, let's hold that close to our chest because there's all of these other things that are connected to that, and then they won't like us, and they won't let us have our offspring, and all that sort of stuff. Um, so the book, like, by the end, he, he like he's trying to help the humans to learn to talk, and stuff um and he's having kind of mixed results the, the other thing is that the apes in the book don't speak english um he lands on this planet and he has to learn this ape language in order to communicate with zira and cornelius and stuff um oh, okay Interesting. and and yeah so that's that's in the movie it's just english but in the book it's like well they they speak and then he learns to speak in their ape language and he teaches them english and there's kind of that thing well it's not english actually it's french um, but he teaches them French, and there's kind of that communication thing. And Zero is much better at learning French than he is at learning ape language. So, like, they talk a lot in French and stuff. But, yeah, it's very it's very much the the whole story from Escape and Conquest already in the whole story of the first Planet of the Apes. So it's cool because it actually, like, contains in it all of the ideas that the entire original franchise has. Um, but the thing is, it also doesn't really... I mean, it's it just just like we were saying with the original movies that they they say both things a lot. Like it, it you know, it's a movie about it, the inherent racism of you know the, this society or whatever. But it's also showing the underprivileged people being apes and stuff or whatever. Like there's that racism and anti-racism tied in together. Like the book is very much that too, in a lot of different ways. Where like the zero nova love triangle thing just like it doesn't it doesn't end up playing out with any real uh, message or anything it's kind of just like there's sexual tension between him and this ape and stuff and mm-hmm. he keeps like treating nova badly in front of her because she doesn't like seeing him treating nova well because he she's like you're like you're an intellectual like the rest of us and you having sex with this weird animal is like, it makes me very uncomfortable. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? It's just like, but it's, it's not just yeah. that it makes her uncomfortable. It's also that she kind of is developing a crush on him and he's developing a crush on her too. There's like this whole, you know, it's because she has the power that he is attracted to her and stuff. And there's, there's a lot of really interesting, weird sort of kinky stuff going on there. Um, and mm-hmm. that's that's mm-hmm. like something that the original movie kind of gets into. That's a part of the joy of the original movie. But it, the book is really like about that um, kind of overtly. Yeah, that, that seems to be a kind of common thing that will happen in a film adaptation where like a book can be incredibly liberal about its details and what it gets into. I mean, one of the really extreme examples is like, you know, the difference between American Psycho, the novel, and the movie. Um, 
where like the book can be like pornographic and grotesque to a really excessive degree because it's just written on the page and it sort of relies on, yeah, it relies on your imagination to sort of conjure those images and it doesn't become the responsibility of a filmmaker who actually has to like render those images on the screen in a way that's actually like palatable. Um, yeah, palatable. And I think something, I think it's interesting that you say that about the love triangle because it's very clear that um, Zira's attraction to Taylor and furthermore, um, Ari's attraction to Leo in Tim Burton's Planet of the Apes right, right, um, right. Is, is, is something that I feel like they've had to sort of touch with kids' gloves. Right. Um, I mean, like when you look into the behind the scenes for the original Planet of the Apes and Tim Burton's, there was always a discussion about how far the interspecies relationship stuff could should go. And the studios ultimately always feel uncomfortable about it. Like, even in Beneath, there was supposed to be a half-human, half-ape child. And it was, like, kind of grotesque. Like, they actually made up a child, and they had, like, test images of this thing. Oh, yeah? Um, yeah, yeah. But it's, like, kind of grotesque, and it really makes sense that the studio was just like, nah, we really just don't feel comfortable suggesting anything like this happening. Right, right. Like, like let's not even... Or whatever it is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and I think uh, with Ari and Leo and Tim Burton's, they they similarly take a route, the same route as the first one. And even though it feels like it's something that is sort of contending with the original concept in the book or something that comes from the source material, they end up treating it in a very similar way as the first movie to a degree where it almost feels like an homage, you know, like just a thing where they just, you know, give each other a little kiss on the lips, right. a little peck. So that, that um, same thing is what happens in the book. Um, so mm-hmm. the, the actual like Zira uh, Ulysses um, connection is never really explored, but there's there's just jealousy that Cornelius picks up on. There's there's a weird tension with uh, Nova and that sort of thing. And then in the very end, he's like, I mean, there there are plenty of times when he's like he's dancing with her and he notices that like he no longer sees her as an ape, but he just sees her as another person. And he's touching her like giant back, but it just feels like a woman's back and blah, blah. Or they're like walking and they're holding hands. And then she's like mm-hmm. mad at him for holding hands. And, and then he's like, well, why are you mad? And it's like, and he realizes it's not just because he's not the right species. It's like that she notices that she's being too informal and that like he knows that she, like, you know what I mean? There's these lines that are yeah, just yeah, yeah. almost being crossed. And then in the very end, when they kind of, you know, are escaping and whatever, which we'll get to, um, they have the kiss thing. And, and you know, just like in the movie, um, Zira is just like, they, they're about, well, in, in the in the book, I don't even know if they do kiss, but I think they're about to kiss. And Zira's just like, I'm sorry, you're just too ugly. <laughs> and that's, uh, you know, the thing. And that's what happens in the movie, too. Um but but you're just like, so damn ugly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, that's the that's the conclusion of this whole like love triangle of the book is like it's building up, building up, building up, building up, and then it's like, yeah, but you're like you're just not hot though. <laughs> you know what I mean? And like mm-hmm. Nova's hot, like you know what I mean? And Cornelius is hot to her, and like that's like it's it's not. Um, but there's that that's kind of what it all leads up to is kind of a little joke that's like not just a joke. It's also connected inherently to all of the ideas of i mean when when nova first shows up they introduce her as like this glorious woman no no a young girl 
<laughs> you know what I mean? It's like <laughs> a glorious naked woman. Well, not even I mean, more a young girl. <laughs> and like it goes on. And then like when he's in the cages and stuff and he's like has to fuck her. He like doesn't want to fuck her in front of the apes and stuff. And then they like take her away and they put an old lady in with him. And he's just like fucking furious. And then they're like, oh, OK, they like really? give her back. You know, like, yeah, we knew we knew that. And then he like gives in to fucking her in front of all of them. And then he builds up this love for her. And and then she's pregnant. And then like the pregnancy is the thing that they have to hide from the higher up apes and stuff. Um, And then, yeah, it's it's very much escape. Um, The other thing that I think is really interesting in the book that's really connected to the movie or to to the original movies um, is just the idea of the three apes. Um, there's the, the gorillas, the chimps, and the orangutans. Um, and, like, in the movie, those kind of, like, we don't, we haven't really figured out, like, we, we talked about it a little bit, but we can really figure out, like, what those are, like, what exactly the point is to having three races when we're talking about, like, this dual racial, racial thing. Like, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and in the book, it's really interesting because the the whole like the whole kind of critique that the book is making is the reason that it's a planet of apes is because basically at this point in the seventies they're starting to do all these experiments on apes and figuring out like the connection of the ape mind and human minds and stuff and their teachability and that they can use tools and but they can't really use tools you know what I mean they can use small like. Mm-hmm. And the humans on this planet are like that, where they basically, like, can't use tools and they're actually afraid of tools and, like, they avoid clothes and they avoid any modern technology stuff. Um, But the apes don't. And that's kind of this divide. But what you kind of realize eventually is that there was, like, as in the movie, there was a pre-existing society on this planet that was humans, right? And they discovered this by finding a doll that makes the noise and says data in in Cornelius's um, um, excavation. So, like, it's all very similar to the the movie. Um, But the whole, like... What was I I getting to? The whole idea that, that this society is these three apes and has existed this way for, like, thousands of years... Um, is significant because like the idea is like these apes got human technology like a thousand years ago and they haven't developed at all um, over that thousand years. They're basically like in like 70s like technology and they've stayed there forever. Um, and the whole kind of idea of the book is like the reason that it's a planet of apes is because apes, they ape, they mimic. That's like that's that's the idea. Right. And that like apes, just like technology can be taught by humans to do things, but they can't go further with those things. Okay. You see what I'm saying? So like basically the apes are like AI in the book. Like the apes are essentially like we got to this point of modern technology where we're now in this postmodern world. And where do we go from here? How do we develop further? And what Pierre Boulle sees is like what we do is like we teach something, you know, we're, we're, we're teaching apes to do these things or whatever. But like humans are becoming less and less like, you know what I mean? They're they're more and more lazy. They're they think less. They're doing fewer like accomplishments and whatever. Um, and just basically the society is slowing down. Um because it's reached sort of this level. And the other thing that happens simultaneous with this is that all three of these ape tribes have developed a 
an, an equal society in which orangutans, gorillas, and chimpanzees all have equal rights. None is above the other. There's, it's not that orangutans are in charge and anyone's below. Like, they're all completely equal rights-wise. Hmm. But as Cornelius is explaining this to Ulysses, he's also like, yeah, but like every single major discovery of scientific progress has been made by chimps. Okay. He's like, so the gorillas and the chimps and the orangutans, we're all equal, right? We all, we all say we're equal. <laughs> but like we all know that like every scientific discovery <laughs> has been made by chimps. Yeah, yeah, okay. And it, sure. and the gorillas are, you know, these warring, dumb tribes of whatever that, like, they can work for us. And I've got my trusted gorilla that I can trust with my life because he's he will he's a brute and he'll kill for me and he'll and he'll keep my secrets forever because he's a great gorilla and whatever. Um, so he's not, but like, you know, if you look at the positions of power, there are a lot of gorillas in higher up positions who just kind of. They're, they're these power guys, and they will write books, but they're very much technical books about, like, strategy and military stuff and whatever. And the orangutans are very much like the establishment power, right? They're, they're, they're um, old – they're, like, establishment science. I think they actually, like, literally say, like, this. But, like, the orangutans are representative of establishment science. And that what orangutans do is they read other books by other orangutans, and they – mix together those ideas and spit them back out. It's, it's aping, like, you know what I mean? And so they've remained yeah, yeah, in this sure. place where they're just talking about, you know, uh, critical race theory <laughs> or whatever, and they can read each other's <laughs> books and sell each other each other's books or whatever, and they all put each other in their top positions of power or whatever, but, like, nobody can actually break into that paradigm because... Somebody like Cornelius, who's actually trying to do the real science, who's actually trying to go out there and figure these things out, has to be subject to this whole paradigm of power that's like keeping this society stagnant. Um, so it is it is the same in the sense that there isn't progress anymore. Just because there is technology and all these things, it is still a stagnant society yeah. that is a is aping off a previously understood way of organizing society that exactly. man had created. Yeah, yeah, okay. exactly. So it doesn't really matter if it's futuristic or primitive. It's the same concept that they've aped on a kind of structure or whatever. Exactly. Exactly. And that they can't go further with it because they are inherently aping. Um, and that's why yeah, it is They're stayed. inherently subservient to the whole structure that they were brought up on. Right. And, that's, and that to me, that's, that's very much just like they are technology. You know what I mean? Like they're mm -hmm. like human yeah, yeah. humanity was this thing that could teach them this and come up with this and have all of these brilliant things or whatever. But once we get to a certain level of technology, then we start to degrade and our technology can continue, but it can't go any further. Um, Interesting. And, okay. and that's yeah, yeah. it's like it's a it's a very like classical science fiction idea. Um, but I never saw that being like I never saw the Planet of the Apes and thought, oh, the apes are computers like that's it's, it's not, like that's the way it is in a of lot course. of movies where yeah, you just yeah, kind of yeah. be like oh it's that it's obvious but the movie has changed that enough that it talks about so many other things and it ends up still like it touches on these things or whatever but like the book is a much more straightforward statement about that but at the same time like it also it's also very messy and like it's not a completely you know formed statement it's it's just kind of a just like the movie, it's a it's a meditation on these things because it is it is weird sure. to talk about. Like I think just like the whole thing of like this guy writing this book and being like, yeah, well we're all equal, but like 
really chimps did like all of the discussion. Like chimps made the atomic bomb and chimps figured out relativity and chimps whatever. And chimps are Ashkenazi Jews. Like that's that's what we're talking about essentially, right? Like, and that's like I think it's a very weird and interesting thing to put in this book because it also like doesn't necessarily work that way always. You know, it's just weird to hear Cornelius talking about like how their society is stagnant and how like it's because of this equality that everything stays this way or whatever. But like, we all know that chimps are <laughs> the only ones really making yeah, this scientific yeah. progress. Um, I mean, I guess that does say a lot about where we are in the post-World War II era. You know, I mean, we talked about this in Oppenheimer is how, I mean, you even brought up Oppenheimer is talking about AI in that same way. Yeah. Where like he was the last great man or something who created the system that, made it impossible for another man like him to exist and everything is just like a like a, a larp at this point or an aping of you know exactly like a, a a retread and a recycling of all of our cultural history at this point and nothing truly new or novel is being created um and like yeah and i guess the, the original planet of the apes definitely makes the statement that like humans were about progress and that progress led to the destruction of the earth. But I guess there is this weird interim period where like that progress led to the bomb and then there was stagnation and then maybe the bomb eventually dropped because of that stagnation and that um, crumbling of society because of how it couldn't progress anymore. I don't know. I mean, those are all contradictory ideas because we talked about how you know, a primitive society could actually be more stable by um, ignoring progress. No, but see, that's that's the thing. That's the thing is I think I think that the movie actually says that, um, whereas the book kind of doesn't. And I think that that's what kind of makes the movie a little bit more interesting. Um, is that the movie really does kind of take that side of things, where it's like, well, no, like Doctor Zayas is right. Um, the book kind of has that in there too, but not really. Like we, we're much more focused on like getting Taylor out and figuring it like, and then there's the end of the book too, that kind of, so, so the, here, the, the other thing about the book, um, and this kind of leads into our conversation, um, about Tim Burton. Um, but the, the book starts off, um, and ends with bookends. And the beginning of the book is about these two astronauts who are on a ship. It's actually, it, it's like, it's that old school science fiction thing where they're just like describing the way that the the ship flies and stuff. And it's like kind of cool and, you know, romantic or whatever. But it's, it's this idea of these two, you know, like a honeymoon couple or something. And they're like out flying through the stars. And it, it's a sailboat thing where they open the sails one way and the light from one star shoots them off in that direction. And they open the sails another way and they can change their direction based on like mm. light radiation moving their sails and stuff. But they yeah, then, then they like see a floating um, bottle with like a letter inside. So then they open the letter. They, they like go up and they find the bottle and they bring it in and they open the bottle and it's the whole book is in the bottle. And they're like reading this book about like oh. somebody who goes to this planet of apes and blah, 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 and whatever. And they're like reading it they're, like in the whole book is that. And then it comes back to them reading at the end. And they're like, oh, that's crazy. Like somebody could have thought like it just shows that anybody could pick up any crazy shit. Like, you know, and then, and then they go back and they, you know, with their four arms start steering their their thing home. Because they're apes. You know, that's the... <laughs> uh, the astronauts the are the apes, you know. 
Gotcha. Yeah. But that's also, so, so before that ending, the, the, the ending that they read is that he basically at the end, when they land on the, on the planet in the first place, they have a, a landing vehicle. So their actual like spaceship is still in orbit. They land on the planet of the apes. And then like at the end of the book, they like get their, their landing vehicle up and operating or no, they don't actually. They, they, the apes are having a launch they're trying to launch a satellite into orbit and they're using humans on it to like test it. You know what I mean? Um, so Zira and Cornelius trick the apes in order to get um, Taylor and Nova and their son onto this um, launch. And then they use that launch to get to their orbiting, you know, um, spaceship and then they can get home. That's kind of the end. And so they get to that spaceship and then they go home. And they finally get back to Earth, and they land, and they're like, "Oh shit, that's that's the uh, that's Orly Airport, the French airport, and whatever." And they land, and then you know the the cops come up and whatever, and they're like, "What's going on?" And then they realize that the cops are apes. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So yeah. that is the ending of Tim Burton's Planet of the Apes, um, where basically sure. he finally yeah, gets yeah. home, but he realizes, "Oh well, this is the Planet of the Apes." And the point is, in the book, like, when you're discovering the whole past of, like, like when they find the doll and you discover there was a past of humans on this earth, they, like, also find Lady's Home Journal and stuff. Like, they, they find, like, a bunch of things that are, like, this is specifically, like, humans on earth. Like, you know what I mean? And the book doesn't really realize mm-hmm. that. So it's just, like, no, well, there were humans here, too. And they also had Lady's Home Journal and whatever. But it's like reading the book, it's very hard to not be like, oh, wait, so this is Earth the whole time. Like, that's just that's but your assumption. Not. And then yeah, and then it's like, weird. no, it's not. Yeah. This is a different planet on the other side of the world where they also had the exact same thing that happened on Earth. Like, you know what I mean? You flew all the way out to here and then you realize, well, humans were here first and then there were apes. And so you escape and then you go back home and you're like, oh, well, what happens is humans, when we left, they hit the point where nothing developed any further. You know what I mean? And so when they land on this planet, they're like, wait, why does this airport look the same? How come they're still like flying these? Like, I I would have thought that this would have been thousands of years in the past. And they're like, oh, shit, it's apes here. So we also have been stagnant, just like this planet was stagnant. So it's almost the exact same ending as the movie, except that it's like a little too convoluted. And the movie just makes mm-hmm. it so much more elegant and like beautiful. Um, but that's very yeah, much, yeah, yeah. I think, like where Tim Burton's Planet of the Apes comes from. And like a lot of a lot of the stuff, like specifically, like you were saying, the uh, the relationship with Zira and uh, Taylor, which what are their names in? <laughs> In uh, Tim Burton, Leo and Ari, Leo and Ari, yeah, yeah. Which like that's that's definitely trying to take the books, you know, romance plot and to develop that and stuff. And the beginning mm-hmm. of the you know ape on the, the I, that was the thing that I liked actually in Tim Burton's was the whole beginning with Mark Wahlberg on the spaceship and them getting sucked into the thing. Like it was a weird, interesting sort of vibe. And it totally does feel like that intro of the movie where it's just kind of like what or of the book where it's just kind of like, what are you doing out here? It doesn't really matter, whatever. And then you just get sucked into this weird fever dream. And then when you get back, it's like still the weird fever dream that you didn't realize was, you know. Sure. It, so Tim Burton actually described this movie as a fairy tale, which really makes sense. Yeah. You know, if you're going to talk about. Franklin Schaffner's version of Planet of the Apes. He talked to, he, like I said before, he talked about it as a Swiftonian satire, not a science fiction. And similarly, Burton's talking about his like a fairy tale, not a science fiction. Right. But 
he he is also concerned with the sci-fi elements in a way that I think the other ones aren't as much. Like I I do think um, Tim Burton was trying to create a cyclical narrative that you would think about and maybe try to piece together in a sort of autistic way or whatever. That is kind of fun, but ultimately um, is like a very contradicting thing. But that's very Planet of the Apes, you know? Um, so I guess like there's this, like, well, I guess we'll focus on the ending and then go backwards like we did with some of the other ones. But so like a lot of people really didn't like this ending, right? Or just, or just thought it basically didn't make any sense and were sort of just frustrated by it. Right. Um, but I found watching this movie a few times and really looking at all the information that there's a very like clear train of logic to the way this works. Okay. Um, so, so, so if we kind of imagine that there's like two timelines side by side, um, there is, so the, the, the spaceship, um, what is it called? It's called the Oberon, which is actually a reference to a character from a Midsummer Night's Dream. So very fairy tale vibes right off the bat. Okay. Um, uh, the spaceship is floating outside of Saturn, and then this like storm appears. So, per- so Pericles, the chimp, gets launched into the you know the electric magnetic storm or whatever, and then Leo follows him. And then at some point after that, the entire space shuttle Oberon falls into it. Right. So, in Tim Burton's version, obviously the planet he goes to is not Earth. Um, it is a planet in a different timeline or alternate universe that they shift to. And this universe's timeline runs parallel to the Earth timeline in a way that... So so essentially, because Pericles is the first one to go into the electromagnetic storm, he's the last one to arrive in the other timeline. He arrives right. at the end of the movie right. after the war, well, while they're fighting and everything, because Leo's the second one to go in. He arrives when he, when we see him, you know, and he crash lands and whatever. Right. But the ship Oberon goes into the electromagnetic electri- electri- storm last. So they're the first to arrive and they arrive like thousands of years before Leo. Right. Which you can assume land. means it took them like a couple of hours to actually get sucked in. <laughs> Whereas it only yeah, took yeah, him some a couple kind of, of minutes. It's kind of yeah. like a, yeah, some kind of exponential thing. Yeah, makes so, sense. So we learn at the end of Planet of the Apes that essentially the Oberon went into the electromagnetic storm and it came out on the other side and crash landed on this planet. And the planet was completely uninhabited. It had no right. like life on it. Right, right. And that, that all these apes that Mark Wahlberg is interacting with are actually the evolved versions of all the apes that were in the cages on that ship. Right, exactly. Um. And then furthermore, because the timeline works this way, we can imagine that at some point in the future, Thade, like an escape, takes the the ship or the pod and fixes it and goes up into space and goes into the electric magnetic storm, which sends him really far back in time in the Earth timeline, in Leo's timeline, which allows him to start an ape uprising on Earth. And then by the time Leo gets back there, Thade has already been there and already led the ape uprising, which which is why he's the Abraham Lincoln statue and has completely changed the world. Right. And that, like, and I think that works really well, the same way that the original Planet of the Apes works as, like, a fever dream, like, thing. You know what I mean? Where... You can think of the first Planet of the Apes as a guy sitting there shooting up and thinking about NASA and, you know, 
experimentation and you know the development of technology in the 60s and whatever um you can similarly think of this as like well these are a bunch of astronauts who get into this thing and it's like a fever dream of all of these elements that like get remixed and whatever um i just think like the big difference is that like in the planet of the apes like in the original planet of the apes and in the book and in all the other (laughs) every other um planet of the apes there's like a point to it. Whereas in Tim Burton's, it's very much like the point of it is these plot like gymnastics. You know what I mean? Where it's like, oh, look at how clever we did. We remixed it in a way that you wouldn't have expected. It's the same thing where there's still kind of all of these beats in this ending and whatever, but it's this time it's about going into the past and whatever. It's like, but it doesn't say anything about anything. You know what I mean? I don't know. The more I thought about it, the more I have to disagree. I, I, I think it... I think it actually does fundamentally talk about the same thing that the original does, or at least the thing that we honed in on about progress, Mm -hmm. I think is very much represented in Tim Burton's as well. I think it's very, very, it's very interesting to me that like progress is actually the reason Leo's ship is out there. Like they're in a science research vessel and they're orbiting Saturn or whatever, and they're doing experiments on chimps. I mean, even there's even at one point, um, when Leo is talking about Earth and what their world is like, it's he actually talks about the Earth as if there's been global warming or like there's been such a huge um, environmental crisis and that basically all the green is, greenery is gone right. and that like actually uh, apes are like a near extinct species and stuff like that and like like even the ones they're working with are genetically engineered. Mm-hmm. They do make mention of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, um, they're smart. So. There still is this element of like it's actually progress that put Leo and this chimp out here. It's progress and that sense of um, discovery that leads them into the electromagnetic storm. And then it's that it's all of that that leads to the creation of this ape society. Like they are the space seed like that ship crashing there and like Leo's decision to chase Pericles into the electromagnetic storm is is the reason why that ape society evolves furthermore it's the reason why Thade goes back in time and changes earth right so like there's something really like hopeless about there's almost something even more hopeless about mark Wahlberg returning to that planet and like it's like it was already over the moment you first like idiotically went into that electromagnetic storm you know right, what i mean right. like it was already over it's like you so you sowed the seeds of destruction. Which is the same as the book, sure. where it's just like, yeah, yeah, you yeah. can't go back, man. Like, this is, you saw the future. You were already in, like, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and you can't trying go back. To escape and that's, it that's is, like, yeah, yeah, and that's all Leo really wants. He just wants to go home. He's such a one-dimensional character. He's so banal and, like, kind of a cipher in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah. Not in a way that's super interesting, like a Nolan movie or a Kubrick or something, but like Leo really is that kind of character. He's so banal. He's so like emotionless and empty. He is just like a science vessel. Yeah. And like it's almost hard to even understand his motives beyond like very basic like ape shit. You know, he's just like, you know, he's like really not a complex human. No. But nobody in this movie is complex. That's the problem, too, is that nobody in this movie is complex. And they're I mean, not the facing any moral quandaries. There's not, like, it's, you know, there's the good ape characters really, no. who are just like, we shouldn't kill all of the humans. And then there's the bad ones who are like, we should. And then there's the people who are like, you know, it, like, and it's, like, and the people can talk, too. Like, that's, 
I don't know. Like it's so. I, I think it's. I think it's. So super- Burton. Burton. Uh, Burton didn't like that the humans talked. No. Nope. That was like one of his big. Dis- that was one of his big disagreements about the script, but not one that he could like totally change. So he actually like removed a lot of the human dialogue from the script. Right. And like I don't know. I don't know if that was actually a good choice in this context right. or whatever. Like maybe they just should have talked more because they're so boring and like one dimensional. Well, here's There's really not much going on with them. The other, the other thing is in the, in the um, planet of the apes TV show, the return to the planet of the apes, um, the live action one, maybe that wasn't return to the planet of the apes, whichever the live action one is, um, the live action TV show, um, the humans can talk in that one too. Um, just because you know it's a different take on the thing, and I guess they didn't want to only mm-hmm. have the actors in costumes talk, like you know what I mean. But instead of like having the humans, I don't like it, instead of them not talking and you kind of having that divide or whatever in the show, it's just kind of like they do talk, but they're just stupid, and it's like it just feels weird, you know what I mean? To like, it's like people landing and being like, oh well, there are people here, but they're not quite like us. Just because they're stupid, <laughs> it's they, they can say everything, mm-hmm. they can deal with tools or whatever, but they're just like kind of always bewildered at everything, and it's like it doesn't really make sense. That's kind of similarly what's going on in the Tim Burton one, where it's like what, they can talk, like why the fuck are they not saying anything ever? Like why are they yeah, just why aren't kind they of like politically? Why aren't they politically organizing or doing anything? Yeah, like, like it doesn't just, really make sense that they yeah would be just as advanced and have no capability. But I don't know. I guess you could say that about, you know, slave populations all throughout history. Like, if they could talk and they were smart, why couldn't they rise up and whatever? Like, I, you know, it's not like... Really yeah, but, it, but that would that, be... But it would need to explore that idea in some way, which it doesn't. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm, the thing is, the book mm-hmm. actually... So, I, I didn't explain. In the, in the book, there's the three astronauts. One of them gets killed in the hunt. Um... Ulysses is the one that we follow. The other one was like a great professor um, from Earth who's the one that started this whole um, thing, like the, the interstellar tr- journey. He like bought the the ship and he put it together and he got his crew and he did this thing. He's the genius behind this thing. Um, mm-hmm. He gets lost in the hunt. And then Ulysses finds him much later and he's been he's in a he's at a zoo um, with a bunch of other humans. Um, and he's doing the okay. thing where he's going up and asking for sugar and then like doing and like Ulysses tries to talk to him and he just like will not talk. And then he's like, well, maybe it's cause there's other apes here. Like you got, you apes leave, like leave me alone with him, whatever. And he like tries to talk to him and he just like won't talk, whatever. And he like gives him sugar and then he eats his sugar and then goes and lies down next to his like 15 year old, <laughs> you know, woman, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. He's just like, and, and Ulysses kind of like, oh man, it's so horrible to see this man reduced to this thing or whatever. But like. And, and how fast that happens and whatever. But that's like a big focus of the book, too, is like it's not just that he doesn't have the facilities to deal with this, but it's like the life that he's been put in, there is no benefit to speech or rational thought or anything. And it's so quick for him to revert back to these really base human instincts, which is just like, yeah, dude, she's naked. I'm just going to fuck her and then, like, give me a banana and, like, what? what is the... You know what I mean? It's just, like, uh, it's it's so... We're just animals and, like, that's it. And if I'm being treated like animals, then, like, I'm not going to think of myself as somehow better than this because that's just going to be torture. And so you end up becoming an animal. Um, which I think, like, that sure, could have yeah. been... Like, if, if Burton was going to really explore that idea, like, he could have done something like that. But 
It doesn't mm-hmm. explore any of these. It's just like, well, they can kind of talk, but then they're, it's basically just let's let, let's get you out of the prison, and then you can blow them all up, and that's like it's it's such a basic, boring movie um, with nothing like they're not talking about anything else in between. The only thing that he does is like the the whole visual aesthetic of it with the you know updating of the ape costumes and all that stuff. Um, mm-hmm. But I think the turning Zira into this sexy thing is so much weirder. You know what I mean? Yeah, they wanted to. They they gave her eyebrows. Yeah, like the idea of like trying to like she looks like she's got on a lot of makeup. Her skin is so smooth and whatever. And it's like Tim Burton trying to make an ape look like a sexy woman is so awkward. And like it's it's like it's such a Burton thing to do. Like I his his idea of I like attraction so. and perversion and making something that's kind of creepy but also kind of attractive and whatever is like. I just think this is yeah, this is the place I, where this is like failed the most. Like, like his, I don't know. His I kind of disagree. I kind of think that's like what makes it interesting. And I think that's what makes, makes it, it interesting too. But it, it's it's also something that I hate about it. Like, you know what I mean? I think that's like okay. Well, there's like the one thing that he's doing, but like that is something that I just like I think is a bad decision. <laughs> like, I think that like having Zira be like visually attractive takes away from the whole idea that she is not visually attractive and that you can develop an attraction to something that isn't visually attractive. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I think that like the idea of, of Nova in this movie being like super, super sexy, but like completely sexless, like that I think is kind of, you know, interesting conceptually, you know what I mean? Because that does connect to the book's idea and stuff. But I also think that it's just, like, a terrible choice, <laughs> you know? Like, I think that in, in the book, there's a lot of, of emphasis put on, like, looking at this girl and, like, seeing, like, this beautiful body or whatever. But then when you look in her eyes, it's the same as looking at an animal's eyes where she just, like, looks away or she whatever. She, there's no humanity there. And then when he finally sees the apes mm-hmm. in the first place, he's like... It's weird because, like, they don't look like people, but I can see their soul. Like, you, you know, there's that thing there. Yeah, yeah. Um, and a lot of the movie or a lot of the book is him, like, trying to come to terms with that, like, cognitive dissonance thing. Um, and it's weird and kinky and bizarre and stuff. And I think that Burton conceptually is touching on that in some way where it's like, yeah, that that, that uh, Amber Heard looking girl, like, she's gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Like, you know what I mean? Just like, if you saw her in the street, it's just like, oh my God. But like, there is no personality yeah, there. She just like kicks ass and has like a straight face the whole time and like doesn't have any passion or anything. And like, the idea that she's somehow attracted to Mark Wahlberg for no reason just like doesn't work. Like, it's, it's, it's all, it's all very... It's like... There is a love triangle thing going on there in a way that wasn't in the first movie. Like uh, Dana and Ari butt heads a lot over yeah. their affection towards uh, Leo. The, like, yeah, you're right. The problem is it doesn't really make any sense and it's not motivated and you don't really feel any of that in right. the actress' performances or anything. It's also wooden or whatever. I mean, Burton even like described... Um, I mean, maybe, maybe I'll get into some of the production stuff because like... I think it would be fair to talk about this movie the same way we did the others, which is to not put so much on Burton. I think it's really... Like, when we talk about the original five Planet of the Apes, we hardly talk about the directors, and we hardly talk about their responsibilities and their visions. But then all of a sudden, like, with this one, it's like, oh, Burton, auteur, made all these movies in the 90s that, like, have this signature look or vibe... And it's like a different time where we start to talk about the auteur more or like their responsibility. 
And I think it's important to remember that this movie is just as much of a studio job as all the other ones. And right. Burton is being plugged in in a way that, like, many other directors could have been. Right, right. I mean, like, so, I mean, Art Jacobs died two weeks after Battle came out. So, okay. like, whether they would, whether he would have made another one or not, like, he was dead. And, right. like, this franchise, like, ended in a lot of ways in the, in the early 70s. And, but, like, in the 80s, obviously 20th Century Fox was thinking about this property and thinking about bringing it back to life. So Tim Burton's project really was kicking around in Hollywood for like a few decades before it landed on Tim Burton. And there's many directors considered, many different versions of the story considered, and this project was championed and really pushed by none other than Richard Zanuck, who was that dense CEO who had to be convinced of the makeup for the first movie. Right, who thought that the movie wasn't about anything. Who thought that the movie wasn't about anything. And he said in interviews, like, of all the things I produced, Planet of the Apes was the one that I thought had the most potential and that I'd want to return to. And so, but it's just funny that, like, um, that name comes back up. That Zanuck, who was never the creative and kind of the, like, suit with the money, uh, president of production at 20th Century Fox at the time of the first film, was the one who was trying to like really get this to come back and whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah, so by the time it landed on, on Burton, like Burton like was very hesitant about taking this project. He, like many other um, filmmakers of his age, was incredibly inspired by Planet of the Apes, thought it was a perfect movie and like really wasn't the kind of thing that should be remade. Um, but he came around when he learned that the studio wasn't really interested in making a direct remake or something like that. So... The idea that he did get to think about it in a new way and create what everyone on the set was calling a reimagining. So obviously you have a lot of elements from the original source material. There's plenty of Easter eggs and homages to the original movie and the original series as well. And then lots of new ideas. So it's a really weird, it really stands out from all the other movies in the franchise as being like a kind of weird idiosyncratic one-off Totally, totally. Um, and and it, it doesn't feel like the others. No, it doesn't. Um, and yeah, like Burton didn't write the script. He doesn't write most of his movies. I mean, it was written by William Broyles. Um, he, I believe he was the guy who did like Apollo 13 and Castaway. He's done like, he's written a bunch of, at that time he was writing a bunch of big movies. Um Right. But, like, it's hard to kind of figure out what happened here because you sort of get a different story from Burton and a different story from other producers and whatever. But either either William Broyles didn't really have his heart in this script and, like, hit a wall with it, or the studio didn't like the script. But for whatever reason, they brought other writers on that had to complete it and change it and, like, adapted it based on certain needs that Burton had and whatever. So it's okay. similarly to the other ones. It's a studio project where there's all these different people kind of involved and a lot of different agendas. And like Burton, like ended up feeling very frustrated by this project. He doesn't really feel like he got to do what he wanted to do, and sort of felt that like um, I mean, it was an incredibly ambitious movie. It, it like it, it had a budget of a hundred million, which is more than The Fellowship of the Ring, which came out a few months later. That's pretty intense. Um, yeah, yeah, I know. But I think a lot of that has to do Beating with the fact that this movie's at that time is insane, yeah, actually. Yeah. I didn't, I yeah, didn't yeah. realize that. 
So where did the money go? Um, is it the makeup? Is it the fact that, like, this is a very practical movie? And that's one of the things I really appreciate about it. I mean, it comes after um, The Phantom Menace, you know what right. I mean, in 99, which was definitely, like, the movie that pushed the digital age. And for Planet of the Apes to kind of, like... Like, this, Planet of the Apes has matte paintings in it and shit, man. You know what I mean? Like, it mm-hmm. really tries to be... Like, there are CGI elements. They're mostly in the beginning of the movie with, like, the ship and stuff. But, like, this is a movie that's almost entirely sets and locations and costumes and practical, like, effects. I mean, that final battle sequence, it's inc- it's crazy how technically amazing it is for how boring it is, too. Yeah. Like... Those are really actors running on all fours on top of transparent sheets that are being pulled by vehicles so that they look like they're running faster. You know what I mean? Like, it's like really insane shit, dude. Like, really wild stuff. And the makeup is fucking incredible. Like, it's really good. Yeah. Um, yeah. And creates a cognitive dissonance that goes like way beyond what the originals did, if you ask me. There's something so stimulating and weird about looking at those actors in the, that, that does makeup. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I feel like it, it's, you know, to say all this is just to say, like, I think we put a lot on Burton and we put a lot on the auteur and stuff like that. But Burton is a studio director, especially at this point. This is when his career started to shift from movies he really passionately, obviously wanted to make to a bunch of studio jobs for the rest of his career. Right, right. Where he just makes remakes and adaptations of things. Right. Um, Like, this is the point where that starts to shift. And it's kind of, like, hard to talk about Burton as an auteur anymore at this point, even though you could make that case with films like Beetlejuice and Edward Scissorhands and Batman and Ed Wood and Mars Attacks and whatever. Right, um, right. So we're in this place where, you know, he was ultimately pretty dissatisfied by the movie and what he got to do in it. And he often talked about working on this movie as working on an expensive Land of the Lost episode. Right. Where that, well, despite that's the, its that's the thing is, budget, what the, still what the movie didn't get really to do things. What the movie really reminds me of is, um, did you ever see the, the, um, the time machine from around that time? Like the the remake, yeah, like, like the two thousand five, uh, like yeah, three yeah, yeah. time machine, whatever yeah, yeah, it was, yeah. just like a mm-hmm, totally mm-hmm, bland yeah. movie about bland people doing bland stuff. Like I don't remember that movie at all, but like that's it. I, I feel like bland, when I was yeah. watching the Planet of the Apes, I was like, this feels a lot like when I watched that movie. Uh, mm-hmm. It's just like there's there's, nothing, there's some magic that's not there. There's yeah. something that's not clicking and making the magic happen, even though there are a lot of amazing elements and like things that were worked really hard on, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, just, like, the human characters are so insanely boring, and, like, all the scenes are just about, like, exposition or making a, like, making a joke, basically. It has, like... That's the thing. is like, the writing the really takes so on the care. Yeah, the writing really takes on the characteristics of The Phantom Menace, where, mm-hmm. like, everything is exposition or a joke, and, like, that's how all Marvel movies are now and stuff. It really has that in its DNA, as far as the writing is concerned. Mm-hmm. And it's really hard to say whether Tim Burton removing human dialogue helped or hurt, you know? <laughs> this, it's just kind of like, uh, yeah. yeah. But I do like the apes in this movie. You know, I, I, I do like, I mean, Tim Burton said he was trying to imagine this as being somewhere in the middle of their, uh, in the middle of their evolution. So if you were going to imagine, like, the original Planet of the Apes being, like, 
um, the end of, of, of their evolution, that they're now fully bipedal and they're, they're speaking English perfectly and all this stuff. This is, this is like an, 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 this is imagining them in kind of a transition phase where they still have a lot of their ape characteristics. And, right. you know, I, I like those, I like the physical performances in this movie, how, how much more apey they all are and how kind of like weird um, the vibe is with all of that stuff. I like the, like, I like that they grab things with their feet and stuff yeah. like that. And like, I don't know. I just think those elements are like really cool, even if they don't add so much to the concept or whatever, well, the meat of it. In, but, the, in the book, um, that was a big part of it. Like, um, at one point he goes to the stock exchange, um, of the, on the ape planet and stuff. And like his description of the stock exchange is like amazing. It's just got to like, it's not only just one layer, but also monkey bars and things or whatever. And he's looking around and he like, he sees all these people screaming at each other and writing down numbers and doing stuff. And it's like, it's a complete description of the New York stock exchange, like of humans doing this stuff. But then he adds on top of it, like, but then they're also hanging from the rafters and jumping around. And like, when you hear applause at the, um, at the trial, He's like, like there were thousands of apes around me, and then when they started applauding, it was like way more insane than any applause you'd ever hear with humans. And I realized why is because apes are generally like very expressive and whatever. And when they clap, they clap with all four like, hands. You know what I mean? So they lay, roll back on their backs. They're clapping with everything. So they make so much more noise and they jump around. And they, so part of the depiction of this as a planet of apes is also like in order for him to satirize humans as these you know, crazed ape-like things, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, Which allows it to kind of create this dream imagery of like, well, let's talk about the New York Stock Exchange. What is it? Well, it's a bunch of crazy apes screaming and they don't even have humanity anymore because they're just so overcharged by these numbers and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, that's kind of one of the things that the book is kind of using to do that with. Um, Mm -hmm. There's a reason that it's apes, you know what I mean? Like, it's it's not just... uh, a goofy idea it's like well no these are these are parodies of humans like inherently well yeah i mean apes are very closely related to us genetically and i just think that's what creates the beautiful cognitive dissonance i think that's something that tim burton understood with this movie too like one of the things he says in the commentary is that he thought it was incredibly important to do ape makeup again because obviously there were like there were definitely ideas being thrown around this time that they could use cgi you know Right, and he says, he says, like I don't think you'd ever be able to do um, CGI apes because, like, part of what makes like the Planet of the Apes work so well is the cognitive dissonance that happens when you put ape makeup on a real human's face, mm-hmm. and trying to having that that cognitive dissonance of seeing something that really does like legitimately look like a humanoid ape that's talking, but also knowing that it's a guy in a mask. At the same time, well, that's 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 the thing. Like that's the thing that the book is talking about when it's saying you look at Nova and the way that she moves and the way that she like her eyes move and stuff. Like sh- you know that she's not human. Like just by looking, even though she looks sure, completely yeah, human. Yeah. Like as it's it's her, you know. And I think that like honestly, when I was reading the book, I was kind of thinking, dude, the best way you could possibly do this would be like the the you would have all of the humans be animatronically played by apes. <laughs> you know what I mean? And you'd have all the apes mm-hmm. be animatronically yeah, yeah, like yeah. played by humans, you know, um, which would be a fully CGI thing, right? It wouldn't possibly work, but 
that's like the idea of being able to see, like look at an ape and see the humanity in the eyes of an ape. That's interesting. And we've seen that. Um, but like mm-hmm. the, the yeah. thing of being able to look at a human and see the lack of humanity in the eyes of a human, that's something they have not pulled off. Um, and it's like, yeah, sure. except that I think quite honestly, I think Nova does a really good job of that in the first one. I think, I mean, we talked about this a little bit when you were kind of saying that you thought that there was more to Nova, that she was trying to do these things and protect him and stuff. Um, and I was saying more that you can take it any way or whatever. But I think that a lot of the descriptions in the book of like specifically like him trying to teach her to smile and then her just like showing her teeth and stuff like and not actually having the understanding of what a smile is, but just trying to mimic this back to him. And then they develop this language of mimicry and whatever. Um, that's something that I think the first movie does well. But it, Tim Burton's kind of I mean, my thing is, man, like when you're remaking the Planet of the Apes, like what is it that's important to you? And I think that to Tim Burton, what's important is like these things like the ape makeup and like the, these aesthetic th- and, and like for well, me, yeah, he's, he, he's, he, he cares about aesthetics. He's not a thinker. And but that's for me, very obvious in the way he talks about his movie. But for me, like that's we talked about like how important it was to get the ape makeup right so that you could actually relate to these characters and that sort of thing. And the ape makeup is amazing in the original movies. Um, but it's also a totally goofy element that like will never pass. You know what I mean? Like, and it doesn't matter because like it's there to be representative of ideas. And like, this is my thing is like when we're thinking about like in this episode, we're talking about all these remakes of Planet of the Apes, the the different um, takes on it, whether it's TV books and these remake movies. Um, I think that thinking about what actually is the Planet of the Apes to begin with um, is important. I think that when we're remaking that we're not necessarily remaking the book as much as we're remaking the movies, but what makes those movies good and what makes that book good is something that I think is completely different than what Tim Burton's idea is of what makes those things good. Like, to me, I think that if you were going to remake Planet of the Apes, like, I would be much more interested in an idea where, like, you're trying to remake Escape and, like, Conquest, and I don't even need there to be apes in it. Like, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I like the Planet of the Apes is a concept where, like, we're talking about, like, a genetic difference here from something that's happening. And, and then, like, the the power structures surrounding that and how we politically deal with this different genetic makeup and stuff. Like, it's it would be just as easy to make this movie about, like, you know, instead of apes from the future coming back and landing or whatever, it's like, well, they're, they're humans, but they have the ape gene. And, like, it doesn't matter that they're aliens or that they're apes or that they're whatever. It's like... The thing that's interesting about it to me is like all of the politics surrounding that. And we could have people in no makeup at all and just like just human beings in suits. And it could be a much more interesting remake of the Planet of the Apes and Escape from the Planet of the Apes and Battle for or, and uh, Conquest of the Planet of the Apes than Tim Burton's idea, which is like, well, let's take out all of the those ideas, but just like let's get that aesthetic thing of like the ape costumes, and it's like, dude, the ape costumes are stupid to begin with. They did a great job with it, but like conceptually, it's like it's just there to balance all this other stuff on top of it. It's not like the point of the movie at all. And like, if you think that's the point of the movie, then you don't understand the movie. That's like, then you're making simulacra. You're like, you're copying something based on there's like your misunderstanding of the thing um i don't know i'm not sure i really agree with that i think like the costumes and the way everything looks in tim burton's is part and parcel to the themes like i said i think 
even though in execution on a scene by scene basis, like a lot of this movie is incredibly boring. I think it really is talking about something. And I think it's talking about the same issue of progress that the original is talking about. I love, I like, I mean, maybe not love is the wrong word, but I really like intellectually like the Charlton Heston scene where he reveals the gun, the ancient gun and everything. I, I like that there's this big thing about the gun. The gun, like we said before, is a weird anachronism in the first movie and the fact that the apes have them. Talked about them kind of being in like a Bronze Age society, but they have guns. Right. Like, I like how in Tim Burton's version, they really are like a Bronze Age society. Right. And that like they wear like armor and they use like swords and shit like that. And there actually is this, there, there has been a conscious uh, dismissal of the gun because it reminds them of where they came from, which is that they're just aping off humans. But yeah, so they were. They were definitely inspired by Japanese aesthetics. Okay. Um, sort of like ancient Japanese aesthetics, but also tying it into um, the World War II aesthetics. So you kind of have these sort of like samurai-ish um, kind of looks to the armor and all of that sort of stuff. Right, right. Um, but then... Some of those curved um, swords and stuff. Mm-hmm. But then apparently Thade's character was supposed to be based on Hideki Toho, who's the you know, commander of the Japanese army during World War II. Okay. Um and you 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 definitely have like in the themes as well, this whole overarching theme of a more militaristic um, and proud society being eroded by liberal values and kind of the getting the nuts cut off <laughs> right 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 uh, or whatever but yeah i don't know there i i also really like the religious stuff in this one i i think like the the um the seamus thing is pretty interesting because like you know they have the lawgiver in the original one or that sorry not seamus uh saint samos which is just like a anagram for moses okay um but so, like, there is this idea that there was, like, an ape uprising that happened on that ship, you know? And, like, that was, like, the original... Seamos was, like, the original ape that uprose and, like, took over. And I guess some of the humans survived because, obviously, the humans, like, there's a human... You know, that was an uninhabited planet, and so everything came from this space seed and this original conflict between um, man and ape... And everything that this ape society is, like, is also aping off that, you know? It's, but there is kind of a cognitive dissonance to the ape society as well, where they're sort of rejecting their origins in the sense of that technology and that gun, but also they fully inhabit the spirit of progress because they're a warring kind of society. There's something interesting going on in Tim Burton's where at this point, Thade is having a really hard time, like, declaring martial law. And, and like, clearly, like, the sort of um, liberal intellectual um, sect of ape society is starting to, you know, drill away at the power of the military. And that's kind of where we find Thade is, like, somebody who is in power and has a measure of control, but has to deal with politics and has to deal with the liberal politics that have now taken over society. And you can't just treat humans, even though they still are a slave class. There's a lot of like, 
um, there's a lot of like concerns starting to rise to the surface about all of that and whatever. And, and like this is a society that is now in transition that clearly used to be more warring and revolve around the military as a way of keeping power and control, but is now becoming more and more liberal. And then Fade using a political gambit and leveraging the loss of the daughter to get the senator to declare martial law and give him full power again and whatever. I don't know. Like, I think there is something being discussed there that I do think is reflected in the design and, like, the way things uh, appear. Um, And I also just think it all looks really beautiful. Um, I really like the sets. I like that this version of the Planet of the Apes actually shows the ape society as something that's bustling and actually has, like, life in it. Like, you just see kids drinking and you see, like, a barber and there's the whole, like, um, reverse, like, organ grinder thing where, like, the... Where, like... Was that Vern Troy? Was that (laughs) Mini-Me? Like, I don't know. (laughs) Like, like with his cup out or whatever. Um... I, I like all those details. I think that stuff's really fun and like adds a lot to it. Um, and that's the stuff I think the movie really succeeds doing. Right, but that's um, that's texture though. Like that's. I think it's texture that does lead to the conversation though, um, mm-hmm. in, a, in in a way that like the first movie almost doesn't as much. Like it it almost doesn't portray like a society that actually looks functional. It's a lot more like. Uh, Formalist and like, you know, it's more of an interpretation of something. Whereas, you know, Burton's does try to create more of a real reality that's living and breathing. It's just like the material is less interesting and not as mature, realistic, or deep. It's like a very cookie cutter kind of like hero's journey action story or whatever. Right. But I think, I think that unintentionally a lot of stuff happens in this movie. I think like the, like, you know, I don't think Tim Burton or the writers were thinking about Leo as a cipher, for instance, but he could be seen that way, and that kind of makes it more interesting. Like, I don't really feel like he's the character we're supposed to be rooting for or care about. It's almost impossible to. Right. It's almost, like, more interesting to care about Thade, you know, and I guess, I guess one of the things I thought was... Another thing I thought was pretty interesting about this movie is... Um, there's a lot of these kind of name things going on in this movie. Okay. Um, like the main character is named Leo Davidson, which is like these are both uh, sort of traditional um, names for Jesus. So okay. it's, it's, it's kind of interesting that they would give Leo the name of, of Christ. And even the Oberon is shaped like a cross. Right, um, right. However, he doesn't really seem to be the savior of anything he actually his actions sort of lead to the complete destruction of humanity (laughs) right right right. and and whatever um yeah i just think it's interesting that like how fade what he's trying to do (laughs) like and he actually does win in the end and like you know go back in time and change all of human society and liberates all the apes like he is the jesus like he is like the real center of the story yeah, 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 yeah. Whereas Leo is kind of just like this nothing burger who, like, because he is so pigheadishly just, like, about progress and doing his job and whatever, like, ushers in the Antichrist and the end of the world. But it's not only know? just that. It's also just because he's a nice guy who likes this ape and he doesn't want to – he was friends with him, so he went into the thing. 
I guess it's kind of hard. Like that's one of the things where I'm just like, I don't know. He doesn't seem to really respect Pericles all that much in his behavior. Like he, like he even calls him a monkey. Like they do that thing. Like he can't like just like he gets that wrong like a few right, times. Right. Where he calls them monkeys instead of apes, and he has a general lack of respect for them, and like really does think they should be the subservient ones. And so like there's there is there is an ape in the book too um, that lands with them. I I, I should have mentioned a while ago just to just to throw it in there, but. He lands with them on the ape on the planet in the first place, and then disappears. And then he comes back when they're like swimming in the swimming hole, and they like have just seen Nova. And then like the ape, their ape friend comes over, and Nova sees him, and fucking runs up and snaps his neck in front of him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. they're just like they're all there, and they're like, "Oh fuck, he's back! Thank God!" And then Nova just like kills him, and they're just like, "What the fuck, dude?" <laughs> they're like, she's still pretty hot, but Jesus, she's like an animal. <laughs> that was our friend, <laughs> you know. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, but it's, yeah. it's not until later that they kind of realize why she did that and stuff. But sure, yeah, her sure. her brutality uh, is kind of a part of the thing, and yeah, them bringing an ape to this planet is also a part of the thing. That I was like, "Oh, is that is that something that the that that Tim Burton took from this?" Is like that this ape is kind of going to be connected to the rest of this story and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, no, no, she just kills him. That's, that's awesome. <laughs> that was really unexpected. Mm-hmm. Like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> nice. Um, I like, I also like what Tim Burton does with the classes. And I don't know, like I said, we keep saying Burton, but I don't know who's responsible for what. I mean, right, it could right. have been the script. But but Burton did talk about how he, th- he always thought that the, like, the um, way the apes were portrayed in the original didn't jive with the way he felt about any of those animals in reality. For instance, like the classes, we've been taught, we brought this up a lot. The gorillas are the majority, but they're the dumb, brutish, like military ones. Right, and right. The orangutans are all like, you know, noble and aristocratic or whatever. And the chimps are like intellectual scientists and liberals and whatever. But Burton switches it up in a way where he's like, I don't know, I kind of always thought chimps were the scariest. Chimps are very unpredictable and terrifying. And that's why I made Thade a chimp when he was actually supposed to be a white gorilla initially. And then okay, he always the white felt that who, who's in who's in the sequels, I guess. Mm-hmm. Okay. But then there's um, but then there's the perception of gorillas. He's like, yes, gorillas are brutish, they're strong, but they're also very kind and noble. They're not as unpredictable and scary as chimps, right? You know, even though they have that brute strength. And so that's why you have Michael Clark Duncan's character. Actually, he's the most religious and pious of all the characters. Right. He, like, bangs on the table and says, we have to say grace. And you see him, like, praying in that tent to Simos and whatever. Like, there's there's a percept... There's, like, in Timber... And, like, then the orangutans are perverted, right? Like, Paul Giamatti's characters. Like, they're the circus animals. They're the ones who, like, touch their butthole and make you sniff it. Right, right. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, so he... He changes the classes to, to reflect more how he really feels about the way these animals are archetypally, right. which I thought was also kind of interesting. Which I guess makes it a little um, less racist to cast only black people as the gorillas. Well, the crawl <laughs> is an Asian American. What? Crawl is an Asian American. He's oh, okay, not black. all right, there you go. They're not all black, but most I of them that, are. When I was watching, I was like, <laughs> is he just literally just like, okay, all of y'all are gorillas? <laughs> And you guys, are, <laughs> no, but I swear, gorillas are not the dumb ones in this one. I promise. Well, <laughs> we're gonna make them. We're gonna uh, make the gorillas they're, really, really spiritual, just so that it's. No, nah, but there's also an Asian gorilla. There is, okay. there, there, there is a trivia point where when Michael Clark Duncan initially heard that he was uh, 
um, that that they were interested in him for Planet of the Apes, he knew that it was for an ape character. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I would love to hear that phone call. Just Tim Burton calling Michael Clark Duncan and be like, you want me to play a what now? I was pretty sure you just said you wanted me to play a gorilla. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Did it's you... Like, they, uh... No, no. He's like, yeah, they probably they probably want me to play a gorilla. <laughs> Just like, yeah, like oh yeah, they were right. But you know what? I really want to work with Tim Burton. Tim Burton was a really hot name at this time. Yeah, like, yeah. everyone wanted to work with him. You know. Yeah, makes sense. Um, makes sense. Like ba- basically, Mark Wahlberg said yes to this project after like two, like five minutes of sitting down with Tim Burton or whatever. You know. Right. Right. Makes sense. I'd say though, this is the first time I ever listened to a Tim Burton commentary, and like. While I don't think he's an intellectual filmmaker, I do like his vibe. I think he's like, he's just such an autistic, idiosyncratic weirdo Mm -hmm. that, like, who is making decisions based on his autistic, idiosyncratic interests. And that, to me, is still, whether he succeeds or fails, more interesting than, like, Rupert Wyatt or Matt Reeves, who did, like, the new trilogy. As, yeah, as far like, as the commentaries? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, as far as the commentaries. But, I mean, Matt Reeves and Rupert Wyatt achieve better results with their movies than Burton. But, like, when it comes to the commentaries, like, they're both these really wooden, um, boring, dry film school guys who just love to talk about what movies they're referencing. Um, but, yeah, suffice to say, Tim Burton's commentary is far more interesting to listen to, even though he's just not an idea man. He's just right. such a freaking weirdo who like has a hard time like like forming his words, you know, um, and has all these ideas going through his heads and whatever. And like Helena Bonham Carter described him as a person who's not aware of his body. Like he'll just be running into things all the time and just like bouncing around and like shooting out ideas. But isn't he married to Helena Bonham like, Carter? We well not anymore. But no. yeah, they they started a love affair. So it was, it was after, and... after they broke up, he, she started saying that he was unaware of his body. No, no, this was, this was like for this the, is like the as, scenes. For, oh, so it was like yeah. as soon as they this slept like during... together, she, she was like, yeah, he's yeah. very unaware of his body. It was yeah, very yeah. uncomfortable for kind me. Kind of guy will like, you know, kind of guy who's like klutzy and will like hurt himself pretty yeah. frequently and whatever. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I see all that in him, you know, and it's, it's, I don't know. I think it's the kind of thing where, like, some directors really have these intellectual ways of doing things, but then others, like, like, like the way Tim Burton thinks about his movies um, and the way he goes about them, I find to be, like, something I respect because a lot of the directors I respect go about it the way he does, where it's all kind of about feeling and making decisions based on things that, like, yeah, you are just idiosyncratically weirdly attuned to. Right. And, like, sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. Um, but I don't know. I think in some ways he was the right guy for this job, and then in other ways he just really wasn't, you know. But it's also the timing and, you know, the time and place you make the thing and the culture that surrounds it and whatever. So if you were going to trust Planet of the Apes to be completely reimagined by an auteur, who would be the one you would choose? I, I don't know. That's not something I've given very much thought. I would watch Cronenberg's Planet of the Apes. Cronenberg, it's like yeah. They're not even really apes. They're just like people whose faces are a little too fucked up. And then they're all like having sex with each other <laughs> in cages mm-hmm. and making each other. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's like, that's, the, that's my thing is like the idea of the Planet of the Apes like is so R-rated and so not like a 
Tim Burton PG thirteen whole family fun thing with people making fart jokes. Sure, like yeah. it's definitely supposed to be about like Nazi scientists and the problems of like revolutions and like you know what I mean? And this I like I do I agree with you. I think that he does a lot of these things in really interesting, almost poetic way. Um where he's thinking about this not as not the way that Matt Reeves and the and the the uh future Rupert trilogy Wyatt, yeah. Um, think about it but just as a like well you know it's just planet of the apes what's the poem that i want to connect to this and how like that is interesting um but i just like i think that the thing that he's expressing in his heart is just like such banal bullshit that like i don't need to hear his poetry like you know i I appreciate the process i think you understand what being a poet is but just like your poetry of your soul is just like not for me <laughs> like you know what i mean it's just not well, like what yeah. you're expressing I mean, I didn't, is I didn't, nothing i didn't like, really want this yeah i didn't really want this to get into a broader conversation about burton yeah yeah, yeah yeah but you and i have always had our disagreements about him especially when it comes to his early career yeah and yeah. like you know we can just say it outright that like neither of us really respects burton at, at this point very much and you haven't had a whole lot of respect for him regardless like um and that's fine i love but, edward yeah. I think you know, it, mostly because uh, yeah, he makes Sarah I mean, Jessica Parker say that she has a horse face, but <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that was man. worth but, the whole you know, movie maybe, to watch. It was you know that early in her career too is fucking hilarious. No, the rest of the Planet of the Apes was really Planet of the Apes was really important to you as well. You yeah, know? that's so the other when thing. When you originally when you originally saw this movie, you just fucking hated it, and I guess you still fucking hate it. But it was interesting to revisit it and to give it some credit and to really try to think about what was there but ultimately i agree with you this movie is fucking boring dude i actually that's the biggest problem um, that's the biggest problem i actually i actually fell asleep during the third act the first time i watched it i believe it. Um, i had to i i rewatched it twice once with commentary and once just like taking notes and it's the most time i've ever spent on a movie i thought was fucking boring (laughs) but i got some things out of it and i do enjoy giving credit where credit's due because people just kind of shit on this movie. It's like pretty much universally reviled. And yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure it's entirely fair. One thing I think is pretty unfair is so, like, we talked about how great the makeup is. The makeup was done by Rick Baker. This guy is like. I know that name. A, a genius. Yeah, he's a genius. He's the guy who did American Werewolf in London. Okay. He got his start on the first couple Star Wars movies. Yeah, he did yeah, Videodrome. Yeah. He did the Michael Jackson thriller video. He did Batman Forever, Man in Black, The Grinch. Um, he was not nominated for this movie. Yeah. For an Academy Award for makeup. Lord of the Rings was nominated. A Beautiful Mind was nominated. And Moulin Rouge was nominated. This movie got snubbed. Like Moulin Rouge and A Beautiful Mind got nominated for makeup over this movie. That's how little people liked this movie. That's how politically unsavvy it was, you know? Yeah, um, I, I can't blame them, like, dude. I can't blame them. I like I completely I agree they were snubbed. I mean, Rick, they, they, it was incredible makeup. But just like that means that everybody in the country has to watch 30 seconds of this movie to introduce <laughs> the makeup thing. Let's not make the country do that. It's just No, ugh, yeah, yeah. Fuck it that movie. Reviled, it shouldn't it be part of the conversation. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah, yeah. I I it I think canceled. that eliminate any good work that was done on it because 
the bad work outshines you know, it so you know, much. You, you know what my theory, though, about this is, though? Like, Rick Baker's career kind of dwindles after this point. Yeah. And I really think is I think he was heartbroken. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, I think like many makeup artists, the original Planet of the Apes was part of the reason he wanted to do makeup. Yeah. And it was, like, a dream project for him to be able to do this. Yeah. And, like, do the best job he possibly could and even advance what had been done before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just got totally snubbed. And then after this point, didn't really do very much. I mean, he won seven Oscars, so it's also <laughs> kind of like he doesn't need another one. Right. But it is just an, it's an interesting thing. He was, he was actually the first person to, to receive the makeup Oscar when it was finally put on the ballot in 82. Okay, okay. So... So, I don't know, just honorable mention to Rick Baker, who, like, got to do his dream project, but was, you know, unfortunately for a movie that nobody liked and was totally just pushed to the side of oh, film history. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, how how pissed would um, you be at fucking Burton, though? I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I maybe don't know maybe it's he, not Burton's yeah. fault. Maybe it's not Burton specifically, but it's just, like, if you put in, like, your entire career's, like, passion into like one project and then you watched it at the premiere and you were like wait that's what you did with all of my costumes and all of my makeup and all of that that's, you just yeah, put it into yeah, that sure. plot like fuck you <laughs> we are you never talking again what and you think about the actors who had to wake up at like two in the morning yeah, to get yeah, into yeah. the makeup chair by like three thirty four so they could be on set by eight and like then and then the whole removal process was a whole process as well because it was actually like grafted to your skin and right. they'd have to use shit to get it off or whatever. It's like fucking nightmarish. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. dealing with all that shit. <laughs> um, by comparison, Andy Circus and all the mocap performers were lucky. That's true, I guess. I guess. Um, so that that was something I thought was interesting. And then there's... Some other stray thoughts. Uh, we talked about the connection between Planet of the Apes and 2001 before. There's something, I don't know if it's, it's like totally intentional or whatever, but there's something kind of funny about how this movie, Tim Burton's remake, comes out in um, 2001. Right, right, and right. And it has kind of a spaceship floating by Saturn, which is where, like, you know, Jupiter and Beyond the Infinite would begin, and which is also not where the book takes place or where the original movies obviously take place or anything. It's mm -hmm. shattered. Sure, yeah. Like uh, the book takes place um, on around Beetlejuice, um, hmm. the, a star. Weird. <laughs> That's actually even weirder. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Another weird, <laughs> weird connection to Burton. But uh, the star that the planet they land on is. Um, uh, orbiting is Betelgeuse, and it's like significantly mm. larger than the Earth's sun. Um, and there's like a whole conversation in the book about like, well, why not go to the closer? There's like a closer planet that you could get to, like um, in only like ten light years, but you're going a thousand light years away or whatever. But the book explains like, no, when you get to light speed, you have to take a year to accelerate to light speed, and you have to take a year to decelerate from light speed. So any journey is two years long because when you're in light mm -hmm. speed, no time passes. So the travel from one planet to a planet like 10 light years away and the travel from the one planet to a planet a thousand light years away is the exact same amount of time for the people on the ship. You know what I mean? 
Mm-hmm. So they choose Betelgeuse because even though it's a larger star, the orbiting planets are far enough away that it mimics Earth or whatever, blah, blah, blah. But like that was their attempt to create this new world, um, this new Earth. They chose one far away because once you understand light speed, nothing is further away than anything else <laughs> because it's like it's a few mm-hmm. seconds difference, um, which is weird. Yeah, but so, yeah, yeah but I, that's... <laughs> I mean, so the the book but, also does the light speed travel thing where that's why time is passing. And when they go, is that why when they go back to Earth, like it's an ape society because it's been so long? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Because like Earth, what happens in both in, the, in both the Beetlejuice society and the Earth society is that humans figure out how to use tools and create societies and they build these things and they build planes and they get to outer space and they get to the point of the seventies and then they, you know, collapse and apes take over. And the weird thing is that at the height of that, they send out an astronaut over to the other thing, you know what I mean? And then the other thing at the height of that, they send an astronaut back. Like, so yeah, you just, that's, that's the, that's what happens to human beings. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? And it doesn't matter what planet it's mm-hmm. on or what reality it's in or whatever. It's like you create this thing and then what becomes of that thing, technology, is... And then the thing is, the book also does say that there's something different bet- from... There's a difference between computers and apes and that they actually are organic and that allows them to be the ultimate technology or something. But mm-hmm. it still is technology. You know? Bio-robots. Exactly. They're bio-robots. Um and it's it's basically ghost in the shell, <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But it's uh, yeah, yeah. Sorry, that, that, that totally yeah. that was a, a, an aside. But as you were saying, sure. yeah, they're on Saturn, which is interesting because or near Saturn, which is interesting because the book um, two thousand one takes place on Saturn, um, even though the movie's yeah, Jupiter. Is, I don't know. There's a lot of weird connections like that. There's also the moment where. Um, Leo watches a transmission from Earth, and I think it's like a party where I'm not sure if it's a birthday party or an engagement party, I guess is what it was. Okay. But that, that like definitely mirrors um, uh, Floyd watching the video of his daughter on her right, birthday. Right. Does anybody say see you next Wednesday in the video? Or Does anyone say see you next Wednesday? Fuck. That'd be awesome to know. But, I don't know. <laughs> But I feel like there's probably other 2001 parallels. Um, it probably was pretty hard to resist doing that when some of those parallels were clear for, to people from the get-go. And right. then the fact that you'd be releasing this on this on, on, in the year 2001. Right, right. It's pretty funny. But um, it's actually kind of funny to consider um, Burton's Planet of the Apes is kind of like the last blockbuster before 9-11. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That was the so height of the like, pre-9-11 world, huh? Yeah, like, so I kind of like, you know, like, we, like, like, like we've talked about with other movies, the idea that, like, that the 90s movies end in 2001. Right, The right, 90s right. movies oh, yeah, don't yeah. end until September 11th. Yeah, yeah, And then it's after 9/11 September 11th the, yeah. that you get the, yeah. 2000 is still the so 90s. Fel- so Fellowship of the Ring came out in December of 2001 after 9-11, and Tim Burton's Planet of the Apes came out like the summer of 2001 before 9-11. So yep, yep. It's a the really weird time. end of one era and the beginning of another, totally. Mm-hmm. Totally. 
I'm glad the they didn't rename the two towers. Costumes and sets and matte paintings and shooting almost everything on a green screen, but sometimes in New Zealand locations. <laughs> well, they did a lot of practicals on those too. I know, I know. They did I'm just a lot of practicals. But Fellowship is incredibly practical too for a movie with tons of CGI in it. Yeah. 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 But just no matte paintings. Yeah. No matte paintings. There's a lot of matte paintings in that one, really? That's awesome. Yeah, there's yeah, there's matte paintings in in Burton. Uh, Tim Burton's Planet of the Apes. Yeah, it's it's surprisingly practical. Yeah. I so guess. you want to take a quick break before we move on? Are you feeling good about Burton? Yeah, yeah. Let's uh, let's take a, let's take a quick break. <laughs> 